This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Dr. Lottie Valentine has had two near-death experiences. Dr. Lottie was an atheist before having her near-death experience. She is a medical, intuitive, evidential medium, spiritual educator, international keynote speaker, and hosts her own podcast, Dr. Lottie Science with Soul. She is the author of Med School After Menopause, The Journey of My Soul, an inspirational story about transformation, healing, and spirituality. This is her story, and this is her passion, Dr. Lottie Valentine. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome to Passion Harvest. Uh, thank you so much for having me as a guest. I'm so excited to hear about all of your experiences, but what I'd love to start with, if you feel comfortable, is your two near-death experiences. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I had two near-death experiences because one wasn't enough. I always joke that wow. I, didn't get, I, didn't, I didn't get all the messages in the first one, so I had to go back and, and get the rest of it. But the first one happened, um, you know what? It is my anniversary today. It happened 29 years ago oh today. Gosh, I, I don't know if I should say congratulations. <laughs> right? Congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm still being here. Yeah, that is, um, that's interesting. My daughter reminded me, today is the day, mom, and you have an interview. Wow. So 29 years ago, today is when I had my first near-death experience. And it happened after my third child was born. So I had two kids already, one that was six, one was three and a half, two boys. And then I gave birth to my daughter. Um, and that birth was traumatic in itself because she was born between a 7.4 and a 7.2 earthquake. So my labor actually stopped um, for about half an hour after the 7.4 earthquake because I literally thought I was going to die. It was one of those moments in my life when you're just thinking, oh my gosh, this is it. Life is over. I never thought it was going to end this way. And that's, you know, and then my labor stopped and then my labor started and then she was born. And after she was born, I hemorrhaged. And there was this like a mountain, the size of a soccer ball of blood clots. It was um, they kept massaging my uterus and then they put me on Pitocin drop, but we did not have any electricity. We lost all the power in the hospital. When that earthquake hit, all the windows were rattling. The whole hospital was moving. And, you know, in the, in the hospital, they have these metal trays with all their equipment on it, little, yeah. you know, metal tongs and you know, <laughs> everything was just levitating on these trays. And people were, you know, the nurses and midwives, my husband, everybody was leaning over um, and holding on to me so I wouldn't fly off the table. So this, this went on, you know, during my labor, and then I hemorrhaged a mountain of blood clots. Then they put me on Pitocin drop, and then after 24 hours, they said, oh, you know, everything looks great, and they sent me on my way. And then uh, about 10 days after her birth, so July 8th, 
um, my friends were having a baby shower for me in the park. And I went to use the restroom and a blood clot the size of a baby's head came out of me and fell into the toilet. And it's when you look, I looked into that toilet and it's, you know, you're just so panicked and, and nauseated knowing that that's what came out of you. And I knew something was really, really wrong at this point. And I had had a lot of pain and I kept wondering why I had so much pain. And it felt like somebody had a fist inside me and was pushing down on the vaginal area. And, you know, thinking like, well, you know, I was a big baby. She was born on her due date, but there were no really complications except that I had hemorrhaged after birth. And I told my friends and I said, I have to go. This is something is bad is happening. So I went home. My parents were visiting from Sweden, helping to take care of the kids. And my husband came home and we went to the ER. And of course, when I get there, it's just a trickle of blood. And I tell them I had this big blood clot come out and they do a manual examination and they say, well, there isn't much coming out right now and kept me for observation for maybe two hours and then said, well, not much is coming out now. It, it could have been a second lining that came out and they sent me on my way. And then the next day, same thing happened. A huge blood clot came out and you know, using the toilet at home and we called the hospital and I said, well, why should we go back? Because now the bleeding stopped. They're not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty late at night. It was like 930 or 10. And I said, that's it. We'll just see the doctor tomorrow morning. And the people, the people on the phone with my husband set up an appointment to see the doctor in Huntington Beach, California, which is where we lived at the time, the next morning. So the next morning I go to the doctor, I see him, he does a manual examination and he says, well, not much bleeding is going on right now. And I tell him, I've, I've bled twice, these huge blood clots. And he sends me on my way. No lab work, no ultrasound, nothing to see. Is there an infection? Why is this woman bleeding? And this was in 1992. So, you know, things were just different back then too. And then that evening, again, I went to the Eustace restroom and another large blood clot comes out. So I tell my husband and my parents and we decide, well, something is really wrong. So let's go back to the hospital. So we go back to the ER, they, they come in, they do a manual examination. They say, well, not much blood is coming out now. Gosh. So they keep me for observation and they close the door thinking, you know, this woman is probably just exaggerating or whatever, because I looked really healthy. I was in my 30s. We lived in Huntington Beach, California. It is June. It's summertime. You know, I'm tan. I look like I am, you know, very healthy. And I was a very healthy person. You know, we ate very healthy. I had just studied nutrition. So I looked like the picture of health. And they, they leave me in the room and they close the door and I don't have a belt to ring. I'm just lying there. And then I start bleeding again. So another large blood clot comes out. So now this is the fourth time I'm having this huge blood clot come out. And to me, lying in the ER, all, I'm, all I can think of is, great, finally I'm bleeding. They're going to finally figure out that something is wrong with me. So I'm just lying there, not thinking, you know, that something bad could happen. 
And at some point, a nurse just decides to check on me and she opens the door and she sees that I'm lying in a pool of blood, like all the papers on the table, you know, that I'm lying on is all covered in blood. And her face, when she opened the door and her jaw dropped, and you know, that, <gasps> that sheer yeah. panic look on her face. And then I hear the call on the loudspeaker, you know, OBGYN stat to the ER, OBGYN stat. And I'm just thinking, great, they figured out something is wrong with me. So I'm just lying there. And finally, uh, an, uh, an older gentleman came in. He was probably in his mid 50s. So, of course, I'm in my 30s. So he looks old to me. <laughs> Not that old. <laughs> right. And he has this younger physician, you know, behind him, which is probably the resident physician. And I'm just thinking, great, they finally sent somebody that's older. He'll definitely know what to do with me. And of course, he is the doctor that ended up saving my life. So again, they, they started with a manual examination. Let's see what's going on. And he asked me, how much have you been bleeding? And he, he looked, the nurse had cleaned up the papers and he just sees this massive amount of bloody papers in the, in the wastebasket. And they start with a manual examination. And as they're doing the examination, another large blood clot comes out. So now this is the fifth time in three days. And right after that blood clot came out, I started feeling really, really faint. And I tried to sit up to tell him, and I, all I could say was, I don't feel too good. And I mean, he knew right away what was going on because I told him I'd been hemorrhaging for three days. So he just pushed me down onto the bed. And then the room filled with, you know, staff and nurses and who knows, you know, all these different people. And so they're tipping my bed. So my head keeps going down and my feet goes up to, you know, pull the little blood that I had left into my vital organs, my oh. heart, my head, right? Trying to keep me alive. And I have a nurse on my left side that's trying to place an IV because back then they didn't play, I guess they didn't place IVs. Like today we place an IV right away. Or when you go to the ER, many times they'll place an IV and it's a saline solution. But they do that because they want access to the vein. If you go into shock or you start uh -huh. crashing, it's really hard to get access to the vein because it's collapsing. So I'm just thinking, what's taking her so long? Because of course, I don't know anything about medical things back then. And on my right, I have a nurse, I have the blood pressure cuff and she's quoting my blood pressure as it goes down. And I feel, I just feel like I'm falling. So imagine jumping out of an airplane without a parachute and it's just this free fall feeling. And as, and I'm thinking today that it's probably my blood pressure falling, you know, that's because it creates that feeling of just sinking. Um, and as the blood pressure goes down, she's quoting it. And then she sort of yells out 50 over 15, hurry. And that I woke up years later with, you know, with from that the trauma response of, you know, knowing that what was going on at that point, because it was right after she quoted that blood pressure 50 over 15 hurry that I knew that I was dying. And at 60 over 20, you know, you barely you have the it's right around there. You, you lose the ability to support the heartbeat because the pressure is too low. Right. So. 
she yells out 50 over 15. And I know at this point that I'm dying. And being the atheist that I was, what do I do? I pray to God to save my life. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> because you have nothing left at this point because it's a knowing and it was very different from being in that earthquake when I thought I was going to die. Mm -hmm. And that's very different. It's an experience that many has had. You're in a car accident and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is it. I'm going to die. And then you don't. And this is, this was different because it was a knowing I knew that I was dying. And I'm just holding on for my life. And I, I pray to God to save my life. And I say, I have three children under the age of six. They need a mother. And it was shortly after that. And I'm just holding on. Imagine hanging off a cliff with just your nails. Mm -hmm. It was that. And then yeah, it's just going to, you're just going to slip and that's it. And it was shortly after that, that I just got sucked out of my body. So one split second, I'm inside my body. And the next second, I'm outside. And, you know, people have asked me, do you know where you entered and exited? I have no idea. Because right. for one second, you're here. And the next second, you're outside. And uh, I never, like, turned around or saw myself. Um, I don't, at least I have no memories of that. It was more um, just a feeling of being a few feet above my body. But being outside my body, the first thought I had was, how can I be outside my body and still be me? Yeah. How can, you know, how does this work? Because I was a complete atheist. I did not believe in anything, you know, you know, surviving life or life after death or angels or mediums or God, nothing. I you was thought once you did, that's it. That's it. It's dark. You're gone. So I'm surprised to find myself, you know, well and alive outside my body. But once outside the body, there was also a feeling of this unconditional love and peace, but also a knowing that there was no time on the other side, that you have access to past, present and future information all at the same time. And you know, I was probably not outside for very long. And then all of a sudden I get sucked back in and it's the feeling of a giant vacuum hose, just like sucking you back in. It's almost like the, the movie Santa Claus with Tim Allen, when he goes through the chimney to deliver presents, you know, is that you just got sucked back in. So one second I'm outside this second, you know, the next second I'm back inside and it's just, it happens faster than you can describe because it is in, in a split, split second that that release happens. And it's just one second you're here, the next second you're back. And after that, they kept me in the hospital, of course. And the clairvoyance. So after this experience already, I started to become clairvoyant, clairaudient, and clairsentient. And we'll talk more about that later. Oh, I love but, that. Yeah. Um, but then the next day I was in the hospital and I, I was really confused about what had happened because I didn't believe in any of this. And I struggled, you know, for years. That must just be my brain. It was just a loss of oxygen in my brain. My brain made all this up. And I really did not know what to make out of it. And then my sister-in-law had just passed away 10 days earlier. 
And for some reason, I'm lying in this hospital bed, all hooked up to, you know, blood pressure, cuffs, and monitors. And I know that my sister-in-law is in the left corner in the ceiling, and I can hear her, and she says, you will be okay. And so now I'm thinking I'm even more crazy, right? So then the nurse, the next morning, the day after that, the nurse comes in and she said, oh, you know, did anything unusual happen to you, you know, in the ER? And I just said, nope. No, nothing, because I was so afraid of saying anything unusual because I figured they would lock me up in the in the mental ward in the hospital. Gosh, because yeah. right? Because I was scared of myself because I didn't believe in any of these things and it was difficult for me to make sense out of it. So then what happened is that I was really, really sick and it took me a good six months. Um, it was like a week before Christmas and my daughter was born in like today. Um, well, I had my NDE July 10th, 1992. So it took me until a week before Christmas until I was strong enough to go to the store, grocery store and get a gallon of milk with, you know, three kids in, in yeah. with me. And, um, and then we all got pneumonia. Uh, my husband, we didn't have any medical insurance for that entire year because my husband's company got bought and he was he had every three months he would get a better job and he was trying to get his salary back because he was you know in a regional type of position and he's he kept saying maybe i should just stay you know we'll get medical insurance and i would just say no no just get the next job i'm gonna be fine you know it's i'm getting better it's slow but it, you know mm -hmm. it's still going in the right direction and then that spring i started bruising first i got pneumonia we all got pneumonia over Christmas and we went to a walking clinic and we all got antibiotics and everybody got better except for me. And on my eighth day of antibiotics, I was so sick. I went back to the walk-in clinic and they said, wow, why are you sicker now? You know, you had an ear infection and pneumonia and they took my blood and they came back in the room and they said, do you have leukemia or AIDS? Because you basically have no immune system. And they said, you have to go to the ER, you're too sick. And I said, no, 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 I'm not going to the ER. <laughs> I was still traumatized and I, we didn't have medical insurance. So I said, well, I'm going to, you know, give it some time. And they called me the next day from this clinic and they said, how are you doing? And I said, it's getting better. I'm better than yesterday. And because they said, if you get any worse, you have to go to the ER because you could die. You're, you're that sick. And then I started bruising and then I got like, big bruises. So I bumped into the baby's uh, changing table and something that would give you a tiny little bruise, like, you know, a coin uh, gave me a bruise that was this big and it spanned my entire hip, hip area on the side. And it was, you know, red and purple. And now it's May. So my daughter is 11 months after she was born. And I go to, I drive myself to the doctor. I put the kids in the car because my husband was at work. And the doctor thought, he said, you know, what's going on? And he thought my husband was abusing me because I had this big bruise. Mm -hmm. So he starts taking the shirt off my kids, looking at my boys. And of course he doesn't find any bruises. And I tell him, I said, look, I'm telling you the truth. This is what happened to me. And we're getting insurance in July. And he said, you have to get lab work. You're so sick and you know, you can die and something is terribly wrong. And I said, I know, no kidding, right? I have a big bruise <laughs> from, from just doing nothing. And uh, he gave me lab work and he gave me all the different medication. And 
needless to say, I didn't do my lab work because obviously I knew something was wrong with my blood uh, because you don't bruise like that. Mm. And, but if I had gotten the lab work, I would have had a pre-existing condition, which means I would not have gotten insurance in July. Right. And I'm only about a month and a half away from getting insurance after a whole year of no insurance. So again, I managed to recover. And so this went on and then, um, Two years later, so this whole thing ended up being a bone marrow suppression and where your platelets are suppressed, your immune system, your white blood cells are suppressed, and you're just not making enough blood cells of any kind. And so you have, you get sick easily because you don't have an immune system, you bruise easily. So just me, if I put my knee on the floor, I would get a bruise covering my knee just from helping my kids tie their shoes. So this went on, it took about six years to really get over that. But especially the first two or three years, I was constantly struggling of feeling like I was going to pass out. I could not go through a grocery store uh, without having to sit down and put my head down to get blood in my head. And people would come up to me in the grocery store and said, you, you look so white. Are you going to pass out? You know, are you, are you okay? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I got, I got another two minutes before I have to sit down because that was my existence. And also like coming back into my body, it was as if my soul never merged back in with my body. And I don't know if it was, as I call it, the soul merging problem, like the soul did not attach itself back normally, or if it was because I was so sick. But what was going on was that I was constantly separating. So my soul always felt like it was going to leave. So I was always like, this happened several times a day. And it was just part of my normal existence to sort of hold on to that soul and keep pulling it back in. And um, so this was just my normal, normal existence. And then at night, when it would happen, I would take my head off the pillow and pull my legs up to get more blood in my head. And so about two, uh, two, two years and about three months later, it was the fall of 1994. I'm, you know, I'm waking up at night and this, this, this was my normal existence. So it wasn't that unusual for me. It's very hard. So, right. So I woke up and, um, again, I feel like my soul is, you know, trying to leave and I'm holding on for my life. No, no, we're not leaving. We're staying because I was not ready to have another experience. One experience was enough, right? Because I'm still trying to process what happened. And I'm still thinking that what happened to me in the ER was something in my brain. My brain made that up. My brain hallucinated, you know, it's because this can't happen. So here I am waking up in the middle of the night, taking my head off the pillow and dust gets sucked out in a split second so one second it's the same thing one second i'm here the second next second i'm outside but this experience is completely different from the first one so in this second experience i just got sucked out but it's a feeling of just tumbling through space so imagine that you're on a spaceship and then you jump out and you're just tumbling through space that was the feeling I'm tumbling through space and darkness and there's no tunnel you always hear about people talking about the tunnel you see the light at the end right. no no time I'm just tumbling through darkness and then I get to this place that 
I call the mid station because there is this awareness that there are levels above me and levels below me. And I get to this place and I hear the most beautiful music. And I look around, of course, I don't have a body, it's just my spirit, my soul. And I see a log cabin. And I'm thinking the music must be coming from this log cabin. So I open the door and I look inside, but it's empty. So then I look to my left and it's the exact same log cabin, just a, just a mirror image of the first one. And I look inside, but it's empty. But then I become aware of this growing white light behind me. So it's almost like you're, you're standing in a spotlight, right? The very, very bright white light. And the, as the music is behind me with the light. And so as I'm turning around, I, be, I become aware that there is the music is coming from the white light, but there is an outline in the light of angels and the music is coming from the angels in the white light wow. but i don't believe in angels so i'm again wondering how can this be why am i seeing angels and hearing the most beautiful music that you can't even make on earth and but being in this light this light this white light is being with source or being with God or being with whatever religion or religious figure you believe in. But I like to just call it source because I don't like to compartmentalize into religion, religious beliefs. But there is a knowing that I'm with source and that light is, I come from this light. I carry this light within me and I return to this light. And we are this light and the light is just pure love. And so we are that light. We are this love and we come from that light. And it's just, you're just like enveloped in this unconditional love, but it's just, it's like standing in the middle of a spotlight or white cloud because it's just every the light is just everywhere and you are in the light you're submerged in the light you're part of the light but then i become aware of two spirit guides one is on my right and one is diagonally to the left in front of me and the one on the right says to the other one what is she doing here she can't be here and i say no, no, no wait a second and he says you she, she has to go back she can't be here and i'm like wait a second how does this work how can i be here how can i still be me and be here but then the spirit guide on diagonally to the left says well if i told you you wouldn't remember but you will remember this and it is as if they can control what we get to remember mm -hmm. right and so then it's like i'm standing on the moon and i'm looking down on earth so i'm like standing out in space right looking down but around the earth there is this silvery glittery fishnet as i call it because i grew up in in sweden in northern scandinavia and europe and uh, my grandmother would lay nets in the ocean to catch fish for the family to eat and i would be the, the little kid that's rowing the boat and when she lifted these nets out of the ocean in the early morning sun because it's early in the morning when you pull the nets 
that when the sun hit the fishnet, the water droplets on the fishnet would sparkle. And so this is the best description I had. This is, you know, 1994, that that is what I'm seeing, a glittery fishnet around the earth. Now that we have the internet and you can Google these things, I, you know, now it's referred to as the grid. So that is what I'm seeing around the earth. But then the spirit guide tells me that everything on earth is connected to each other, but everything on earth is connected up to the grid. And with that message, I got sent back. And, you know, my whole life since then, since 2004, is really about this. And it's this second experience that really transformed my path, my life path. What, why am I here? What am I doing? Right. And so that's why I always joke. It, it is as if that first experience, I didn't get to have a full experience they were too quick to save my life so we had to do it again so they had to make me sick for a while and then i'd go back and learn it learn some more because it's this experience that really um propelled me to do what i'm doing today and then um after that i started getting i know clairvoyant clairaudient clairsentient and claircognizant and that was, you know, something that happened over several years, uh, over a period of 12 years that um, this just transformed my life. I'm going to give you a pause in case you have wow. any questions. <laughs> I do have questions. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. And it, it's so hard to put into words, but you did a yeah. fantastic job. I've got lots of questions. Can I just ask you a question about yeah. the first experience? Mm -hmm. You talked about coming out of your body and the concept of no time, past, present and future was all there. Did you see any events in the future? No, I didn't. Uh, it was just an awareness that there was no time on the other side. And I spent, let me think when that was, that was probably around 2003. I spent the year, the, my 11th year out, I read, I had stacks of books next to my bed. And I was determined to figure out why there is no time on the other side. And I read physics books and Stephen Hawkins books. And, you know, why is there, I want a scientific explanation. Why, you know, why I had that feeling. Now I know a lot of other people, you know, now that we have the internet and we can really communicate these experiences, you know, through podcasts and sharing all of our experience on the internet. And now I realize that so many people have had very similar experiences. Um, but I, uh, I didn't see any future events or past events. It was just a knowing that that's how it was. Fantastic. So on to the incredible second experience. Um, oh my gosh, I don't know where to start. Well, first of all, <laughs> do you have medical insurance? Now I do. Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we live in the United States, so <laughs> different. Um, what did the angels look like? So it's um i in the light that was just an outline so like a traditional outline of an angel right mm -hmm. wings and a big gown and a long hair but i did not see uh, a specific i could wouldn't be able to draw it it would be like an outline of an angel mm -hmm. just the contour of the angels but the interesting part is that i didn't believe in any of it you know it's why do you see these things when you don't i always would have thought you know, coming from being an atheist and a scientist that if somebody 
were going to see something, it would be because they had a belief about it. And I think that's part of why I had to have the experience because it was also to help me um, disprove that, that that's not how it is. Because if I had seen what I believed, it would not have transformed me, right? I had to have an experience where I experienced something I didn't believe. It's, it is actually quite <laughs> interesting because many people have a near-death experience and experience you know their point of consciousness in their human incarnation but for you yes. it was almost the complete opposite so it's very very interesting yes. yeah yeah it is because it took me years a good it took me like 12 years to really start understanding and believing it and just you know using you know the clairvoyance and the clerk clear audience that came with it i love your um analogy for the grid around the earth that's a beautiful description looking like the net what what do you feel the grid is for what is the grid i i know you it's an energetic grid but what what is it i think that is i don't really know about much about the grid i've never studied it um okay. to me um i just go with you know what i my experience was to me it is how everything is connected we are all connected to each other on earth we are connected up to the universe you know everything really has meaning in the end the planets all i don't really know much about astrology but each mm -hmm. planet symbolizes different things right the whole universe is alive the, our planet is alive mother earth is alive everything on earth is alive all the trees the animals and we are all connected to each other and this is um you know the 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 chords of how we are all connected it's the energy the energetic fields of how information travels between all that is and how everything is tied together yeah i i really get that often people say and i know you had three children often people say the love mm -hmm. was so incredible and so beautiful they didn't want to return was that the mm -hmm. case with you um that uh, yes in a sense because that love that you feel it you don't want to leave why would you want to leave that incredible um uh love and beauty so you don't um you don't want to leave that let me just turn that message off um so you you don't want to leave that you you want to you know stay there but for me i had I wanted to go back, you know, I didn't have a choice, but my mother instinct was so strong. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, you know, it's like, they sort of anchored me, I always say my children are my anchors of, of keeping me on earth. Um, and if I had had a choice, I didn't have one, they just sent me back. So <laughs> yeah. I hear people, some people get a choice, and they're like, I want to stay here. And then they're shown how beautiful their life is going to be. And then they come back. But um, that I did not get that choice. So, but it is something you, um, yeah. I mean, every day, my whole life, I still think about the beauty of that light. And of course, there's no fear of dying because I know that that's will be my experience when my when I'm done with my life here. Yeah, it's it's also interesting. People that have had near death experiences, the the clarity of that experience never fades even after many 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 years it's so clear in your mind's eye or yeah it's like it in happened your heart. yeah it's like it happened you know yesterday that feeling but then i got you know clairvoyant and clairaudient and 
all my watches stopped and he was, you know, had all this electrical interference. So that first year, um, I put my watch on, um, that was probably three or four months out and my watch stopped within five days. Then it took me nine months before I was strong enough to even go into a store and buy a new watch. And I wore it for five days and it stopped. I returned it. I got another one, wore it for five days and it stopped, returned it. And then the third time I was so embarrassed and I got a different watch because they kept saying, oh, you know, we haven't gotten any other watches returned. And I got another watch. And then again, that stopped in five days. And I told my friend and she said, it's not the watches, it's you. So <laughs> then I realized, you know, that I was the one causing the watches to stop. And then I walked by the television and it turned on. And I thought my children must have the TV clicker, but it was on the, on the table, so they didn't have it. Then I thought maybe one of my neighbors were watching TV and if they had the same TV, they had aimed the clicker so that it somehow came through my window, it could have turned my TV on. And this is a this is a year after my first near-death experience. I went to ring all my neighbors' doorbells to ask if anybody was watching TV. <laughs> they were either not home or they were not watching TV. Then I came back inside, walked by the television, and it turned back on again. And that really spooked me because I, you know, it made me feel afraid. Like, why is this happening? Why are watches stopping? Why is this television turning on? And I thought maybe my grandmother is here in spirit and, and she's you know playing a prank on me. But um, these were just things that happened and it took 12 years for my watch to tick one year. So after one year, my watch tick about a month. After two years, it would take two months. After three years, it would take three months. And when my daughter was about three, I had 16 or 17 watches. And I would only buy watches that had a second hand on it because it was the only way I could tell if it was working. And sometimes the watches would start working if they had been in my drawer for a while. And so I could wear it for a few days and then it would stop. And then I'd put it in a drawer, pick another one. So that was, that was my life. And then at 12 years, my watch ticked for a whole year. And I said, this is it, I'm, I'm healed. <laughs> and then I just stopped wearing watches for a while. How I didn't want, yeah. How interesting. So I'd love to also talk about how your life fundamentally changed, but mm -hmm. the gifts that you came back with from, or that you remembered mm -hmm. from your near-death experience. Yeah. Um, so um, the biggest thing I think was that I became clairvoyant, clairaudient and clairsentient. And I started seeing things before they would happen. Um, I would get messages about, uh, you know, relatives being sick or uh, people were going to die. And uh, there is this one great story that I love to tell. <clears throat> one morning when I woke up, I had three images. And the first image was a black scratch on our van door. We had a van at the time. My kids were about 9, 12, and 14 at the time. And there's a black scratch on the van door. And then the next image, like I see two kids in my car and I know it's my middle child and my youngest child. And then the third image, I'm leaving a note on the windshield of a black sedan car. And I'm thinking like, why am I leaving a, a note? Where is the driver that hit me? Or if, if they get injured, there would be police there or an ambulance. I, 
I couldn't under make sense out of why I was leaving a note on the windshield. So I tell my two kids, I say, this is what I saw. So where could this accident happen? And we figured out which intersection. And we were living um, in a suburb of San Francisco at the time. And my kids were going to school in San Francisco. And I was driving them into the city every day. So after we crossed the bridge going into the city, we get off the freeway and then we come down to a traffic light and we turn left. That is the only street where we have oncoming traffic. So that is the only place that anybody could hit us on the right hand side of the car. So for 10 days, every time we get to this intersection, my kids' noses are pressed up against the window looking at saying, okay, mom, coast is clear, no cars. And this goes on for like 10 days. And we're just, you know, worried, is this going to happen? You know, and then we are in the bookstore in our little town in East Bay, San Francisco, Walnut Creek. And coming out of the garage, I'm trying to turn on to this tiny little street. And there's a big truck. He's offloading, you know, boxes of books for the bookstore. People are trying to come into the parking lot. So it's really narrow. And as I'm turning onto the street, the, my, the right side of my car scrapes the parked car that is a black sedan. So as this is happening, I know I'm just like, this is it. This is, this is the scratch. So I get out of my car, I walk around and I see the exact black scratch on the door. And here I am, you know, and I'm just laughing. People must have thought I was crazy because I'm just laughing. I'm just so happy it's over. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right? And everyone was safe. Like, right, everyone is safe. And so here I am, I'm leaving a note on the windshield of the black sedan car saying, I'm really sorry I scraped your car. Here's my you know, phone number. But um, it's just such a classic story. And of course, nobody was injured or, you know, because the, the car was parked. So there was lots of things like that um, that would happen and it would be more and more and more of these types of messages or seeing things, hearing things over the next, well, it's still, it's kind of a constant evolution of, of you know, spirituality and mediumship and psychic, it, you know, I'm still developing as I'm, you know, today, which yeah. even though it's, you know, 29 years later, but um, it became just more and more over time. And also the process of trusting your guidance and intuition and, you know, exploring and expressing your near-death experience, that's part of the process as well, not pushing it away or thinking you're weird and crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it took, it took time. But it was, uh, what I learned is whenever you, I get a message, it's, it's always true and you can't change it. Um, I was, you know, I, I was told when my father was going to pass away and um, he had a stroke and he was 82 at the time. My father was a physician and he was in great health and he had a stroke. And my brother, who is a surgeon, called me, one of my brothers, and he said, dad had a stroke, but he's, everything is good. Like he's in the hospital. Everything looks great. He's lost his ability to speak. But other than that, things are great. And I said, well, I'm coming over with the kids because, you know, we got to, you don't know what's going to happen, right? So we're, again, we're in this bookstore, this bookstore just keeps coming back yeah. <laughs> and we're buying books um, for the kids to listen on the airplane. And it's a, like a Friday afternoon, we're flying there on a Monday, getting there on a Tuesday. And they, on Friday, they told me that, oh, you know, dad's doing great. They've moved him to the rehab floor and they're going to be working on 
uh, getting his speech back. But other than that, everything is great. Um, I said, okay, great. And then I didn't hear anything from them. That was the last thing I heard. And that Friday, I started seeing his coffin. And I kept telling my husband, I see his coffin. I see it with a, it looks like this. I see it from an angle. And it was a funny angle because it was from above and from the right, like looking down on the coffin. Usually, like any funeral that I had ever been to, the, the coffin is either facing you, you know, vertically or horizontally. Mm-hmm not on an angle from slightly above on the right, kind of like you're seeing it from above and down. But that's how I saw it. And I kept telling my husband and it's, you know, it's got these flowers on it and I know he's going to die. And my husband just kept saying, you're just worried. He's doing fine. They moved him into rehab, but stop worrying. And I just kept praying for him that whole weekend and I'll please be okay. And I just knew that that was it. And when we got there, they never told me what had happened, but it turns out that when I started seeing his coffin was the exact time he collapsed in the hospital and it took a turn for the worse. And by the time we got there, uh, you know, it's not like Tuesday morning because it's the 24 hour trip from California. Just the flight is, you know, 11, 12 hours. And I got there an hour before he passed away. And then when um, I then, of course, I had changed my ticket going back and we had his funeral and his funeral where they held it was in a place. It was a round chapel and the benches were on a tier. And mm-hmm. as I walked in, I knew I could see why I would have seen the coffin from as an angle from the right but I didn't want to go sit in that spot myself. So I asked the person who was seating people, I said, I'm the daughter, where should I sit? And he took me to my spot, which was the exact spot with the exact angle of slightly from the right and above that I had seen the Kadai coffin. So, you know, you can't, what I've learned is that you can't change things if it's if that is something that has, if that is the time that person is done with being here, that's the time, you know, you can't, you can't always change things, even if you would like to, it's sometimes it's just, that's just how it is. Um, It's our timestamp. Yeah. So obviously the, I I feel up to you, but the near death experience in some ways opened up your ability to connect with various levels of consciousness in some way. Mm -hmm. My question with all your, premonitions is do you think the future's already happened is it already set or are you seeing the most likely probable energies of it the occurrence yeah it's a tricky question right because we have free will um did they determine is it already determined what i'm going to eat for dinner i don't think so (laughs) okay is it determined what i'm going to do tomorrow i don't think so i think that um i think there's certain events in our life that we are going to experience. I think there, there can be more than one path to having that experience. Um, for example, you are to experience having being married and having children in this lifetime. Well, you have a choice. There's, there's these three people that you could marry and that's your free choice, but you're gonna have that experience. You're gonna get married to someone and then you determine which which life play you're going to play out you know what i'm saying yeah and then there's certain experiences that come from certain events um i have my my sticky note analogy that 
that I like to use. Um, like imagine if you were up, um, now this is a pink yellow sticky note. Usually sticky notes are yellow. yellow. Right? I love sticky notes, by the way. <laughs> right? I, put, I put them everywhere. <laughs> They're the best. So um, imagine that you were in the spirit world before you incarnated mm -hmm. and you had this little sticky note pad. And on this sticky note pad, you wrote down all the different things that you were going to experience in this next lifetime. And I think a lot of these things are obstacles because we learn from overcoming our obstacles and that provides a lot of growth for our soul when we go through you know, something that's more difficult and then we come out on the other side. But think of it as you, you had the sticky notepad, you wrote down all the different experiences you wanted to have and obstacles, and then you put them all in your little backpack and you put your wings on and you know, you're flying down to earth and you're incarnating. Now you've forgotten all about the sticky notes that you packed in your backpack. But as you're going through life and you're coming to a problem, think of it as, okay, I pulled out one of these sticky notes and this is now my problem. And you're trying to overcome that problem. And once you overcome it, that's it. Like you throw away the sticky note. But sometimes you get in a loop, right? And that problem keeps coming back. So let's say you marry someone and that that relationship didn't work out and you remarry you find somebody else and you marry that person but it's the exact same type of relationship so that sticky note it's still with you right you thought you threw it out but then you have the same problem with the next person so it's not until you change your perspective of that situation and you resolve that problem and then you move on and maybe your third marriage or fourth marriage you finally figure out that all those other people were of that same mold and it's it was for you to come to some realization about yourself and why you were attracted to that and that, and that could be ancestral too and that loop it's like an energy loop so that energy you keep uh, providing fuel for that energy and you're stuck in that energy loop kind of like being in a hamster wheel and it's not until you change that perspective of that problem and situation that you can get rid of that sticky note and then move on so for each sticky note that you resolve during your life you know your backpack gets lighter and lighter and lighter and maybe let's say we incarnated with 20 sticky notes and maybe they said okay when you're done with all the sticky notes you might be 40 or you might be 95 that's when you're done with your life so i'm saying so it doesn't necessarily have to be oh you know when you're 74 years old and three days and 14 minutes and three seconds that's it that's your time it might just be you know something we incarnated for and to have certain experiences to to let our soul grow in this life and it could be you know, depending on that journey and what that journey looks like, because we do have free will, right? So for you to have all those experiences could be, you know, a long period of time, or it could be a shorter period of time. I love the, the, <laughs> the post-it or the sticky note um, analogy. Yes, recycling experiences is an opportunity for growth. Unfortunately, not everyone does that. Mm -hmm. um, and they seem to get stuck in the hamster wheel of unhappiness and yeah 
keeping on that similar vibration. Oh my gosh, have we got time? I wanted to talk about some of the incredible things you're doing as a medical intuitive. Mm -hmm. And I know you also work with an ancestral healing. Do you mind just mm -hmm. discussing that a little yeah. bit for the audience? Yeah. So yeah, it started out, um, the ancestral healing is very interesting to me because, um, I started seeing things when I was working, you know, doing readings for people, just mediumship readings and seeing how patterns would repeat, uh, talking to the spirit world and talking to the client and seeing, you know, maybe um, abuse in the family being repeated, uh, you know, down through the generations. And that's how I kind of got into the ancestral healing. And I, then I studied ancestral healing with um, Mark Willin, who wrote the book, It Didn't Start With You. and um i studied with him for for a couple of months um and we had to work there was i think so many doctors and counselors and we had to do homework every week and resolve you know people, each other's problems but what's fascinating with the ancestral part is that now we know that we actually pass trauma via dna so we can prove there are several genes i know the fkbp5 gene is one of them where we can see if the grandfather had a trauma that it can express in the grandchildren right so it passes down they know at least three generations that that dna can transfer and probably longer but it's fascinating because we inherit trauma through dna but also from that grid or that fishnet right because we are energetically connected to our ancestors and also from being around our parents, we, you know, we, we grow up with our parents and then we take on problems and things that we see in our own families. Uh, so that is very interesting. And many times you can have a physical problem. You can have a mental, emotional problem, OCD, you know, you can have rashes, eczema, uh, any kind of physical ailment that is actually relating back to, to ancestors and that you merged with their patterns or energy right um so that's one thing and then i also work as a medical intuitive which makes sense because i went to medical school so this whole journey led me to medical school uh at the age of 54 graduated in 2016 then did my residency in 2018 uh founded my own practice in 2019 um and but now i work i split my time so i work as a physician a couple of days a week and i work spiritually with people and i also run my own podcast called uh, dr lottie science with soul and i'm trying to help people bridge that gap um, between science and soul because we are uh, spiritual intuitive creatures and there is more to us there's more to heal our physical self than just you know taking a medication many times we have to heal you have to work spiritually emotionally and physically and we have to incorporate all of it to really provide healing for that person it's it's not necessarily just one or the other it's usually a combination of all of it in order to create healing also my book uh it's congratulations called, on the book yeah, yeah it's called med school after menopause the journey on my soul and that is available uh, online worldwide at Amazon and other online book platforms everywhere. And that is a more in, you know, in depth, um, takes you on a journey from the beginning of my first NDE and what happened and all the, the clairvoyance and clairaudience and different examples of what happened. 
um, and how I ended up going to medical school when I was 54. And then it has about one chapter about what is it like to be in med school when you're 54, which is a whole other story. Yeah. But um, after each chapter, there is a message and um, like a, an exercise that you can incorporate into your daily lives to help you. I wrote the book to help you transform your life and find your intuitive abilities and so that you can find happiness, peace and happiness you know, in your heart, heart, mind, and soul um, during your life journey. So the book is, you know, I wrote it for the people to help other people.